0: Years ago when I finished college, I lived in Europe for a little bit. I worked with Campus Crusade for Christ and lived in a city called Belgrade. It's a city of 2.5 million people, it's undergoing a lot of changes. Changes were sweeping through Europe and it was uh, what we would call as believers, would call it uh, somewhat of a closed country. So we were careful to not just right on the front end, let people know why we were there. Yeah, we were missionaries, but really we were American tourists. Studying their culture getting to know the people there and I had a friend from America from New Hampshire His name was John DeJager and we were dressing one night to go to a party. They called it an American party They were inviting a bunch of us over and just we're gonna celebrate life in America and whatever they told us to and my friend John DeJager had a shirt on and the shirt said I love Sunday school and You know big red heart and I thought dude you can't wear that Number one, because it's just not cool. But number two, hey, don't mock Sunday school. I love Sunday school. How many of you, you have a pretty good pass when it comes to Sunday school? It's not so bad, right? Some of you. Others, not so much. I love Sunday school. It was a place for me to kind of see where I, see where I landed socially in some ways and a chance to test my knowledge, a t- chance to learn the lesson and get the answers correct and be rewarded with sugar and stuff. And with those charts, I remember early in high school, I learned that my Sunday school teacher for that semester would be my dad. And I thought, he's going to mess up my swag here, cramp my style. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go to the Sunday school superintendent to protest. And then I learned that the Sunday school superintendent was also my dad. But what do you think of when you think of Sunday school? For a good number of you, Nothing. It's not a part of your past. But Sunday school is really about a classroom. It's about learning. It is about sugar. It's about stories. It's about other kids and an older person. And that older person was there, what, to modify your behavior, to keep you in line. Trust me, I know. But then, after Sunday school, there is life. And in life, what happens Everybody's on a journey. Everybody's spiritual story is different. But in life, you grow, you evolve, you change, you listen, you learn, you study, you observe, you suffer, you reevaluate, you reflect. In Sunday school, the stories are neat and tidy, clear and uncomplicated. But then you grow up a little bit and you realize the answers aren't that easy. That life is much messier than what you were taught. In Sunday school, you could say it like this. In Sunday school, you were told things about God. But as you grew up, it was harder to hold on to those very ideas. There we go. In Sunday school, you were told things. As you grew up, you have found it hard to hold to these things. Because you grew. You learned. You thought, you evolved, you changed, you observed, you studied, you suffered, you reflected, and you reevaluated. evaluated I, I say it like this, Sunday school is, it's like Encyclopedia Britannica, but life is like Wikipedia, right? Encyclopedia Britannica is closed and controlled, but Wikipedia is free. There's the open exchange of ideas where things are welcomed and shared, and it's Ever evolving. For the past several years, I've read a selection of books written by some authors that I really admire. In fact, they're having a conference that'll be simulcast in Jackson coming up soon this month, called the Q Conference. And these guys wrote a set of books. They're with the Barner Research Group and they they wrote a set of books, this one called Unchristian, Almost Christian. The next Christians, and the last one, You Lost Me. The subtitle, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. They helped put into the language of America a word that's popular now. In fact, just a study the last couple of months has shown us that it's the largest growing religious demographic in America. Do you know what it's called? If you do say it out loud, really loud. The nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These writers, again, they realize that everybody's on a faith journey. Everybody has a story. Those stories vary. But so many, they say, are rethinking and leaving. They refer to them in a few different categories. They, they call them the nomads, the prodigals and the exiles. The nomads are those that have walked away from the church but still want to follow Jesus, still want to be spiritual. The the prodigals are those who've left the church and faith altogether. No more. And the exiles, the exiles honestly are among us. These are people that are still sticking around, still wanting to learn and grow but are having a hard time reconciling their faith, what they're told with what they try to hold on to and how they live in this world today? Is God calling us to be Encyclopedia Britannica in a Wikipedia world? How can we follow the singular way of Jesus, yet be radically accepting and inclusive of people the way he was? Here are some four types of nuns, as I put it, there's the no way, the no longer, the never haves, and the not yets, so the no ways, not coming to church, and these folks broadly speaking, have a genuine hurt, something against the church. Second category, no longer, they were here, they left. The never-haves are really, in many ways, their kids, even adult kids, of the first two categories. And the not-yets, I'm telling you, they're out there. It's why pastors stand up here and tell you to invest in people's lives and invite them to church because many people that are invited will come if they're only invited. There are many, many not yets. Further study indicated that the prodigals, the exiles, the nomads have some perception problems toward the church. You're not, you're not going to disagree with this. Here, here are five perception problems against the church. First overprotective. How many of you think that Jesus taught be in the world but not of the world? We get that from his prayer in John 17. It's not a teaching, but it's a prayer, a high priestly intercessory prayer where he he prays essentially that. But we look at the church church, and the perception is that we have an insular body of people. We have groupthink. We just want to have prepackaged answers and we want to shelter ourselves from the world at large and isn't it time i say it is church it's time to lift the protective safety seal and get out there and engage the world as jesus taught us to do the second perception problem with the church is that we are shallow easy answers platitudes formulas slogans Thirdly, that we are repressive. And yes, this really speaks to the area of sexuality. Think about the scripture that God gave us. I believe it's his word. And it opens with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And it ends with a marriage between Christ and the church. And in the middle, there is this unabashed display of erotic love. It's in there. But we get so uncomfortable. And we don't know how to lead our kids and our marriages and in the church we don't know how to talk openly about it and we just seem to be repressive. Fourthly, exclusive. We live in a world that's opened and varied where ideas and and acceptance and tolerance are eagerly embraced. And fifthly, it's really what I want to talk about in the time that we have this morning, it's anti-science. Anti-science. Now, When Jesus taught, he taught us to engage the world. He was provocative and shocking in how he taught. And he embraced, he had the singular truth of the way, the truth, and the life. But he embraced people on the outskirts. And he taught us, he added to the Hebrew scripture. The Hebrew scripture in Deuteronomy 6 says to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look with me at our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're more than welcome to turn to your tablet or open Bible or just look at the screen. One verse, it's in the context of love. Y'all know this passage. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. If you have knowledge and you can move mountains and you can prophesy, you're a great or a skilled orator, but if you don't have love, you are what? You are nothing. You are a clanging cymbal. Here in this context, he says toward the end of this chapter, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Scripture teaches us that as Jesus grew, it says in Luke two fifty two that he grew in wisdom, and in favor or wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. That's every area that you can grow in. Jesus grew; he grew in stature, that means physically. He grew in wisdom, that means intellectually. He grew in favor with God, spiritually; favor with man, socially. And when he grew, it as he was growing up, he went to the temple don't know if he went to Sunday school, but he went to the temple. And the first thing that he did publicly in regards to the scripture was he grabbed it and he read from Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, he talked about, it was prophesying toward him that the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has called me, ordained me to proclaim the good news, the release of captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, light into darkness. And he talked about the kind of people that he wants to produce. That he would, he would crown us beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning and weeping. And that we would wear a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And then listen to this expression because it's what I'm getting to. Jesus taught in his first public reading of scripture, he taught this. And in that passage in Isaiah 61, it says that he wants to produce oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness. When I was a little one and I was in Sunday school, I was a little acorn. But God says he wants to produce something in me and in you that's like a tree, a tree that we admire, a tree that brings shade and beauty, and a tree that has depth. Jesus taught in parables, and it says in Matthew 13, when I love this one simple verse, it says, he got up out of his house and went and sat by the sea. How many of you want to be like Jesus there, right? Get up out of your house, go sit by the sea. And Jesus did that. And he says that the crowd gathered around him. So he got on a boat and he told them a parable. And the parable went like this There is a sower, and the sower went out to sow, and he sowed seeds. And some of it fell, some of it fell just on the path. And the seed that fell on the path, the birds came and snatched it. And then some fell um, on the rocky ground. And the rocky ground didn't have depth. It didn't have the soil and the nutrients that it needed. And the sun came out and scorched it. It withered away. And some fell on thorny soil. As that sower sowed in Jesus' story, some of that seed fell on thorny soil and the thorns grew and it choked it out. And Jesus went on, With some of that seed, it fell on good soil. And it produced grain, some 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Jesus cares that we have depth he taught in agricultural times and he spoke in agricultural ways and he desires that we be oaks of righteousness that we don't just stay as acorns but that we grow and that our growth has depth to it and for you and I to be people of death, we've got to move away from Sunday school, God, with the formulas and the slogans and the easy answers and platitudes into something more meaningful as we grow and evolve and change, listen and learn and study and observe and suffer and reflect and reexamine. He wants to meet us in all those stages of our lives that we would grow. Psalm 1-3 says, like a tree planted by streams of water, that you would have a foundation there, that your life, your mind, would not be a shallow existence. One of the perception problems, not just our shallowness and how repressive and exclusive we can be, but it's that we're anti-science. A little boy approaches his dad and says, Dad, how did human beings come about? And the dad says, son, we descended from apes. And he went to his mother and said, mom, how did human beings come about? And she said, we were created in the image of God. And he said, well, dad said we descended from apes. She said, well, I was talking about my side of the family. (laughs) Every human society in every continent, over every segment and season of human existence, we've wrestled with that very question, who are we? Why are we here Where did we come from? What are our origins? Smart people and not so smart people have postulated theories and offered explanations to that. And it's not going to surprise you today that your pastor is going to stand here and preach this. That God gives us an explanation. That the Bible offers a very unique explanation. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to say to you this morning a few things to the church that just consider our perception problem of being anti-science. I want to ask you a question. Should we? Should we be anti-science? Is there, is there a dichotomy, a discrepancy between the two? Can, can we be, in honoring God, can we be both people of faith, and people of science and intellect and reason. This morning I say to you that science and faith are not at odds. Science and faith are not at odds. Man, that just drops in here, doesn't it? Because I'm inviting debate and discussion, and I could have a very big week, the 9.30 service, the 11 o'clock service, we have scientists and engineers. By the way, I'm not a scientist. I didn't sleep at Holiday Inn Express last night, so I want you to be very gracious to me in the balance of this sermon. But I believe that science and faith are not at odds. Listen to the psalmist. The psalmist declared in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. the sky, The sky, it speaks of his handiwork. Day after day, it pours forth speech. Hear this. Day after day, it pours forth speech. Night after night, it reveals knowledge. Do you hear that? God wants us to learn from his word, but also from the world in which we live. In other words, that passage alone tells me that we should not be at odds with scientific research and discovery. God wants us to learn all the truth, and he continues to speak in his creation. How many of you love October? How many of you have been outside, right? How many of you have looked up and looked around and appreciated? It's not just leading to wonder and to worship. It can lead to intellectual discovery. Science and faith are not at odds. Well, how can you say that when so many people smarter than you, Robert Green, say that faith and science are opposed to each other? Galileo was a famous 16th century physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and the church wondered about him. In fact, the church started doubting his faith because Galileo postulated a theory that now everybody knows is true, and that is that the earth revolves around the sun. How many of you know you're moving right now, right? The earth rotates around the sun, but way back Then, when Galileo postulated this theory, it was a theory at the time, the church got nervous. They referred to this young man. Nobody lived long back then. But they referred to Galileo as a young, irritating genius. Galileo, imagine him in Sunday school. Imagine him discovering something about the world and just knowing that it's becoming true. But the church in his faith said, no. No, no, no. It can't be true. And leaders at the time would point to things like, Psalm 104, verse 5, it says, The Lord has set the earth as fixed. Uh-oh. Earth's rotating, earth's fixed. Houston, we got a problem. How, how can you stand up here and say that faith and science are not at odds? And I say to you that when the Bible wants to be scientific, it's dead on. But the Bible in Hebrew language at the time used metaphor. It used, um, you know, language that was different and so we need to understand that i don't think the scripture in psalm 104 5 and a few other places is 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 trying to be scientific what it's trying to do through a different literary device is telling us something that is true which is you can count on the earth i mean we need to be caretakers of this increasingly what seems like an increasingly fragile planet we love the earth and the lord has made it set firm that's not a reference to whether it rotates or not it's that you can count on it how many of you the sun rose for you today how many of that happened to you yesterday how many of you happened to you two thursdays ago four fridays ago right six wednesdays ago how many of you expect it to happen tomorrow The, the 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 earth is fixed in the sense of we can count on it and it's a sure thing and god made it that way science and faith are not at odds and i say And it's an ongoing discussion, but I will say to you that every time there seems to be an apparent contradiction, then there's a misinterpretation. It's either bad science or misinterpretation of the Scripture. Not only are faith and science not at odds, I would say to you that science can't tell us everything. So as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is not called to be anti-science, you don't have to fear Fossil records or carbon dating or anything like that. You can be open. In fact, God himself says to us, he's speaking to us through his creation. He not only created, but he created the creative process. And he continues to speak. So let's learn. Let's learn from the word that's always true. And let's learn from the world that's majestic and amazing. And let's lean into it. And let's lead our society in learning from the world in which we live in. Science can't tell us all the answers. There's a man named John Polkohorn. And he is, he's got a funny name, but he's brilliant, so don't be mocking him. But he's a Cambridge physicist and an Anglican priest. What a combination. And he gives a helpful illustration. He says that assume that a, a pot of tea is boiling on the stove. And you ask, why is that pot of tea boiling on the stove? And one person says, because burning gas is heating it up and firing those molecules up. And a second person says, because I want tea. Now, who's right? Who's right? Both. Y'all are so scared of me. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. Both are right. Both, I would say, are equally right. One did not intend for a mechanistic, scientific type of answer, but he's just as right. And one was spot on when it came to the mechanistic forces that were making that happen. Science has limits. And you know, some of you are engineers and scientists, and here's what I want to say to you. There's a place for you in the church, and there's a place for you in this church. And we want to value your understanding. And we want to welcome your doubts and your skepticism. And we can learn from you. Faith and science are not opposed But science, as valuable as it it is, I didn't do well in science, but I remember the scientific method, right? Observation, theory, hypotheses, measurable over time, answers. You can measure things and weigh things and quantify and come to conclusions. The scientific method can honor God, and it is so good, and it's so helpful. But it's not going to tell you everything. And as science can give a mechanistic scientific explanation, it can't talk about why you want tea and the purpose and intention of your heart. And I would say to you, it's why all of us are people of faith. What do we have faith in? We can talk all day. But all of us are people of faith. And that desire, that purpose and intention of things that aren't measurable and quantifiable, those things are so stubborn, aren't they? they're just so unyielding, they're not going away. The two most common questions I get when it comes to faith and science are from Genesis chapter one and two, imagine that. The first common question that pastors get, I in particular, is what about the contradictions between Genesis one and Genesis two? I have a friend, he's he's, he's a growing friend, but a couple of years ago we met and he said, hey Robert, I've been attending your church I like to come pretty regularly. I come late. I sit in the back. I leave early. I don't take notes. I don't sing. I'm a little bewildered at this point, right? He says, I just, uh, science, engineering background, I just, I have, I have trouble. The unexplainable, the unknowable, the platitudes and easy answers and slogans and formulas and Sunday, Sunday school God, I can't take Sunday school God. And I did that genius of me. I said, you know, I'm praying for you. And I want to learn from you. I want to be brothers with you. I want you to read the Bible. You know, you come to church, but you don't take notes. And you don't open the book. And you come late and leave early and all that stuff. But how about reading the Bible? And he, he did. He started it. And he had trouble right when he got into it. And if you read the Bible on your own, apart from Sunday school, and things that you've been told, you might read Genesis 1 and 2 like my friend did, and thought, is there a contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2? Is there? And you need what we need to do with open Bible and open heart, we need to read the word. And we need to read the word and ask the right questions. And we need to read the word and realize that there was a reason that it was written and there was a time that it was written in and there was a people that it was written to. In Genesis chapter 1, now this is when we open up the can, okay? So we're going to have some debate on this when we can. That's going to be my point in a minute. It's it's good. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's more about listen, it's more about artistic celebration than it is scientific documentation. Genesis chapter 1, it has a rhythm to it. It's artistic, rhythmic, poetic. It's a song of celebration. There are songs of celebration in Scripture. Exodus 14, the Red Sea parting and the people going across, that was a song of celebration, so it was written thusly. It wasn't meant to be scientific, it was meant to be a song of celebration. In Exodus chapter 14, Miriam, we have a Miriam in church today, Miriam and Moses, a song of celebration about that very thing. In Judges chapter 4, Deborah and Barak, not our president, but a different Barak. Deborah and Barak had a song of celebration as did Deborah in Judges chapter 5. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, does a rework of the creation account and he has Aslan sing the creation account because of the song and the rhythm and the poetry. What is the rhythm of Genesis chapter 1? God said it was so. God saw it was good. God said it was so. God saw it was good. There's a rhythm there and a beauty and it is artistic celebration. I'm not standing up here saying that it doesn't have historical reliability because it does as it's intended to. But there is this celebration, and Genesis chapter 1 is a song, and Genesis chapter 2 is an essay, and we have to read them accordingly. The second most common question that I get about science and faith is Genesis 1 and 2. Is it a literal six days, or is each day a 24-hour cycle like we know it? Now, some people get uncomfortable with that more and more because of uh, scientific research today. Now, listen, I stand here vulnerable, naked before you, and I say to you, an idea that I'm willing to back up in any forum, I say to you that there is not a discrepancy between faith and science. They're not at odds. But you have Darwin's theory of evolution, natural selection, genetic mutation. You have leading scientists today saying that the, earth is, the universe is 14 billion years old and the earth is 4.5 billion. You have the Human Genome Project that's mapped it out. And it has showed us that we are genetically very much alike, above 99% like other primates, specifically chimpanzees. Now, you counter that, don't you? That one's kind of easy because you counter that. Do do chimpanzees worship God? Do chimpanzees build hospitals and universities? Do chimpanzees uh, run for office? Don't answer that one. Um, But there are (laughs) thoughts, right? There are things that seem to contradict. Was it a literal six days? And notice how good I am. Notice how smooth I am. I've saved this question so that we don't have time to answer it. The sermon is almost over. I'm brilliant, aren't I? Was it a literal 24-hour period? Some people say, okay, I'm learning from science. I'm reading the Bible. I'm seeing art and poetry. I'm struggling to know which is which. And there's that passage that Peter talks about with eschatology, end time stuff, and he says that, you know, one day is what? It's like a thousand years. So, okay, so there you go. I, boom. Here's what I want to say to you. I know, hear me, I'm, I'm going to start, I'm, I'm moving away from preaching. I'm going to pastor for a little bit, okay? Because God's called us to be a local body that learn together and love each other. I know some people that are brilliant. They're faithful believers they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. But they think that it's not a literal six days. And I know people that are intellectually sound, scientifically sophisticated, and they believe that it's a literal, six, a literal 24-hour period. And what I would say to you is that you and I need to read the Word, and we need to learn from the world, and we don't need to fear anything About discovery. But read the scripture with an open Bible and an open mind and go to it with a question why? Have you ever noticed that if you go to something with the wrong questions you're not going to get the right answers? Are you with me? So don't pepper these passages with the wrong questions. There is somehow God said it was so He saw. It was good. There's some how, and it is historically reliable as it's intended to be. But there's also the question of why. Is Genesis 1 and 2 about telling us all about how God created, or is it telling us that he created? And here's what I want to say to you. Here's what we have in common, that we believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty significant, isn't it? That's pretty significant, isn't it? Am I alone in this? So here's what I want to ask you. Rather than biting and devouring each other, what if we learn together? This week I've got someone coming to see me. He doesn't attend our church. But I've got a feeling that this is going to be a litmus test for him. He's listened to some sermons online. He's probably formed some opinions. And he wants to talk to me about this. And I think for him it's a litmus test of whether I'm a real Christian or not. If I believe as he believes. Now while I welcome his coming, while I relish the visit with him, I wonder, does God intend for this to be the litmus test for us? And what I want to say to you, I want to make an appeal as a pastor, if I'm your pastor and this is your church, I want to say to you that if you believe that Genesis 1 and 2 represents a literal form of creation, a six-day creation, that you would not judge others who think differently than you on this issue who are also like you in the process of learning, that you wouldn't think differently than them, and you wouldn't see them with disdain, as enemies of the faith, and maybe not even as compromisers of the truth. And if you believe that it's not a literal six days, that God never intended us to read it thusly, if you believe that way, I want to ask you not to look down your nose at others who believe differently, who believe the other way, and see them as knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. Okay? Would you agree on that? That we could learn and we wouldn't bite and devour each other. We wouldn't be afraid of all the ologies that God has created, that we could learn to see the compatibility of theology with other things, the other ologies that God has made, the study of life, of biology, and all the other beautiful things. There's a scholar that I admire. He's a Reformed theologian. He's written a little book. I try to, when I recommend books, I try to recommend the small ones. You've noticed that about me. But in, in this book called Systematic Theology, Wayne Gruden says this about Genesis 1 and 2, about the creation account. He calls us, he says to us, maybe, maybe we all don't know everything. And maybe we need to learn more and learn from each other. And maybe God created some mystery and things we don't know. Listen to this. Here's what he says. So that we, he would test us to see if we could learn to love each other. How about that? That's where I'm at on this. How about you? Does this have to be a litmus test? Or can we love each other? Paul said... When I was a child, what did he say? I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but then I became a man, I put away childish things. Look what he says next in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's it. So when somebody runs up on me, like this man might this week, I can look at him and say, you don't know it all. Right? And he look look back at me and say, Pastor, you don't know it all. And you know what? It's a good thing. That helps me. And here's what I want to say. We need to leave, lead, lead and live with Conviction. But we can lead and we can live with conviction and humility. I believe it's true. Today I want to shatter the notion of Sunday school God. And if you're in exile here today, I guess if you're a prodigal or nomad, you're not here today. But if you're in an exile and you're here today, I'm saying stay. Find a church that believes and teaches the Bible. Stay and learn. There's a place for your questions. There's a place for your doubts. We're all on a journey of learning and discovery. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I pray that we can live that. Would you pray with me?